We should pray. Father, thank you for the truth of music. Thank you for that great reminder that the cross already won the war. God, there's, there's so much that's just tugging on our hearts, tugging on our souls, trying to get our attention, trying to distract us, trying to break us. But God, we just need to rest in the fact that it's already done. It's already finished. So Father, today I pray that we would catch a glimpse of you in a way that maybe we haven't before now. I pray for the one who's sitting in here thinking we're nuts right now. I am thankful they're here, and I'm thankful that they're absolutely reading the situation correct. We are nuts. <laughs> we have no reason for hope outside of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray we would remember that and that we would be incredibly undignified because it's worth losing the dignity, <laughs> appearance, professionalism when we come face to face with our Savior. God, continue to shake us. It's in your good name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Woo. I don't know if any of you got to hear my little solo there in the middle when they paused and I thought we were just going into the next verse. <laughs> I practiced all week for that. <laughs> hey, you know, if you're going to fail, fail big. That's all that I say. Um, so we are starting a series on the kings of Israel. We're not going through First and Second Kings, so we're going to go to First Samuel. So take your Bible, go to First Samuel. I'm going to encourage you, if you have your Bible, take it out. Um, get ready, loosen up your fingers, because we're going to be jumping around a bit. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles available in the back. If you have a, a device, that's fine, an iPad, a Kindle, whatever, just navigate over to, to 1 Samuel. Actually, let me give you the exact, the first passage we will look at specifically will be in, in chapter 5, so you can turn there and get a head start. That'll be the only cheat that I give you for the morning. The rest of the time, you're going to have to try to keep up, so we'll see what happens. Um, I, I, this is a great opportunity for me to do this, actually. So I am um, preparing for... This particular message, what, I, I use a lot of different resources. Um, people ask me that. I, I use a lot of different resources. I use uh, Logos, Logos, whatever you want to call it, the Bible uh, program. That's the program that I use most often. I use all kinds of commentaries. I have read uh, 1 Samuel this week a number of times in, in uh, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, which I'll be preaching out of this morning, uh, the New International Version, the New Living Translation. I've even used Good News for Modern Man. That's a trip. Um, uh, I've used the message, just just kind of wrap my head around things. And one of the resources that I use that I found very helpful, and, and you get a kick out of this, is actually this thing called the Gospel Project. Ever heard of it? If you're a parent, you certainly have. The Gospel Project is the curriculum that we've been using with our young people for the past three years, and we just finished the, the final year of that cycle through the Gospel Project this summer, and today we're starting it back up again, back in Genesis chapter 1, using the same curriculum we've used for the last uh, three years. So, so let me just address this here real quick. Why in the world would we use the same curriculum again? First of all, um, it's an excellent curriculum. The Gospel Project is great. All Scripture is inspired by God, and, and what the Gospel Project does is it goes through all of the Scripture. I mean, it's fascinating to me how they lay it out. So they go through all the scripture. And now, being our second time through, it gives us an opportunity to repeat some of the stories, repeat some of the teaching that's in scripture. And, and you all know repetition is key, right? That's, I mean, how many of you think that I'm actually preaching something new that's never been preached before this morning? Hopefully not. Um, if it's brand new, I worry that I may have become anathema and I'm in trouble. So you can pray for me. 
Um, one of the awesome things about Gospel Project is that it has an um, a intentional focus on the Christ connection of every story. Frank, that's something, I've been here a little while, and I've noticed every single time, even so here we're in 1 Samuel, and we're going to talk about Jesus today. Okay, he's not mentioned in the story, how is that possible? Well, it's simple. He is the hero of Scripture. And so the Gospel Project does a wonderful job continuing to make that Christ connection. And every week the lesson is, is pointed to Jesus. So there's a lot of that. The resources for parents are excellent. Let me encourage you. This is something that's... So every week our kids will walk out of there with these things. You probably find them in your minivan like on Wednesday. These are not coloring pages. I don't know if you've actually looked at these. But on the other side of them, for each age group, there's, there's different resources for parents to help review the lesson with your kids and start discussion with your kids. And so I'm going to encourage you to, to use those with your kids. On top of that, um, every week an email goes out with a recap uh, of the lesson from Sunday and then a heads up as to what's coming the next Sunday. If you're not getting that email, just uh, chase Jen Wood down in the hallway and ask to be put on it. Email her. Her email address is very complicated. It's jwood jwood at utown.org, and she'll add to it. In addition to that, in a couple weeks, in two weeks, at 1045, we're going to have a parent meeting where you can sit down, ask your questions, and get some more information. Honestly, sounds like I'm doing a commercial for Gospel Project, and they should sponsor next week's message. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. We like Gospel Project, and so we're going to continue to use it. And I used it this week to kind of help me um, encapsulate some of the things that are happening in the story of, of the king. So, so, okay, there's my commercial, and now it's time for my introduction. Okay, seamless transition. My preaching prof would be so proud. Um, so when we get to this section of Scripture, you get into 1 Samuel, and you start talking about the kings of Israel who are coming up, what you find is, is the context. Let me, let me make sure I give you the context. Israel's in Egypt for hundreds of years. Israel is oppressed by Egypt for hundreds of years. God raises up Moses. Moses leads his people out of Egypt through the Exodus, and he leads them into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, they're supposed to be faithful and obey the covenant promise that they have made with God. In fact, God's intention was for his people to live in such a way that the nations around took note, and they were a light to the nations, the Gentile nations surrounding them, and it would point them to who God is. The problem is, as you can find reading through the book of Judges, it didn't go so well. Instead of being a light among the nations, they actually assimilated a lot of the nation's idols and gods and false um, 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 practices, and, and they became just like the nations that surrounded them instead of being, being different. And so you get into the book of Judges and you have this cycle that happens, right? You've got um, um, a terrible sin of the people that is followed by God's judgment by bringing in other nations to judge them. Then, then the people cry out to God, please help us, we're in a terrible situation, we repent, we're tap, tap, we give up. And God relents and sends a judge who will come in and he will lead the nation back to God and everything's great and hunky-dory for a little while. And then they sin again. And God sends another nation. And so this cycle repeats itself over and over again in the, in the time of, of Judges. And so all of the, this time, the, the tribes, the nation of Israel is being led and ruled by Judges. And, and then suddenly here in 1 Samuel, it, it changes a little bit. And so here's 1 Samuel in, in a nutshell. Chapter 1, you get the story of this lady named Hannah who is miserable. She's mourning the fact she's never had a son, but that great grief is overcome by great joy when God gives her this man, or she doesn't give him a man as a child. That would be scary. She gives him a young man, and she names him Samuel, which means asked of God. 
And upon the birth of this young man, Samuel, in chapter 2, you have Hannah singing this beautiful song, this, this beautiful tribute to God. And in it, when you read it, what you find is an outline um, th- that sets the course for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, and if not the rest of human history. And that outline is this. It's threefold. It's real simple. It's God says humility is necessary. Sin will occur. Bad will happen. But God is still at work no matter what it looks like. And one day, a perfect king will rise up from among God's people. So that, that's kind of the, the threefold outline that you need to keep in mind as we look through these, this story today and next week with David. As we look through some of these things, you're going to see humility is necessary, bad things are going to happen, but God's still in control, and one day the perfect king will rise up from among his people. So now, fast forward, Samuel is young, and the enemy of God's people begins to rise up, and that enemy at this time is the people of Philistia, the Philistines, the ones that we're somewhat familiar with. And there's great battles happening. You get to chapter 4, and the Philistines are going against Israel. And Israel has become so arrogant and so cocky that what they do is they don't inquire of God how they can beat the Philistines in this battle. They just go and get the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Indiana Jones one that'll melt your face off, that one? You know that's not biblical, right? You know that was fake? Okay, good. Just got to make sure. Every once in a while, people get confused. They get the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it out, and they put it in the middle of the camp, and they walk away like this. Go ahead, Philistines. Give us your best shot. And the Philistines say, okay, and they wipe out Israel and steal the Ark. So, so it's this, this amazing thing that, that what they did is they thought that they were, well, God had us. What just happened? I don't understand what happened, okay? Other side of the story, which is hilarious, in chapter 5, this is where we're, I want you to see this just because it's hilarious. The Philistines steal the ark, and they bring it to Ashdod, and they put it inside of the, the area where the, the false god Dagon is set up, okay? So they put the ark next to this, this image of Dagon, and the next morning, look at verse 3 of chapter 5, it says, the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, and there was their idol Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they wake up the next morning, and they're like... Huh. Hey, that's funny. It almost looks like it's worshiping the ark. How crazy is that? Man, must have got windy last night. And so they, they set Dagon back up. And if you continue reading, verse 4, they got up early the next morning. And there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Okay. Something's going on. In addition to Dagon continuing to fall over in front of the ark of God, while the ark stayed in Ashdod, now in addition to that, what else happened was the people of Ashdod started getting this weird disease, and they couldn't figure it out, and it's described as them being covered in tumors. And they couldn't figure it out, they couldn't figure it out, they freaked out, they're like, we got to get this ark out of here. So the good people of Ashdod said, you know what, Gath. The city of Gath deserves it. And so they bring the ark to Gath, and you know what happens? The same thing. Those people start getting covered in tumors. And they realize, okay, this this must have something to do with the ark. Let's get rid of this thing. And so they figure out, how are we going to get rid of it? And we're going to bring it back to Israel. And they they send it back to Israel, and Israel receives it in chapter 6. And and just to throw this out there, kind of the lesson that comes out of that is, here's the, the real. God ain't your trophy. Keep that in mind. Um. Much has been, <laughs> got to be careful how I word this. In our culture, particularly in America today, there is a segment of people who call themselves evangelical Christians who instead of clinging to Christ have clung to the idea 
that they have a trophy that they can just put up in front of everybody and the world will simply go, oh, I get it, okay, that's fine. That's not true. God is not your trophy and he will stand against your pride no matter who you are every time. God's no one's trophy. So now you fast forward 20 years, go to chapter seven. Chapter seven, we we fast forward now about 20 years And you get the cycle of judges kind of completing. The people are going through a hardship that's being brought to them because of the Philistines. And they, they cry out to Samuel, who has become a prophet. And they're like, we, we need to go back to God. We need, we need help. We need to repent. In verse 3 of chapter 7, it says, Samuel told them, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of the foreign gods, dedicate yourselves to the Lord, and worship only him. And the people are like, fine. And so they do the same thing that happened throughout the cycle of Judges. They, they get rid of all their foreign gods. They, they, they dedicate themselves to worshiping God alone. And the Philistines are about to come against Israel. And they're about to like, have this major battle that's about to happen. And they, they've come to Samuel and said, we repent, we repent. And Samuel says, do these things. And they start doing these things. And now, now Samuel goes to God on behalf of the, the uh, Israelites. And he's praying to God. And he's crying out to God. And he's asking God to forgive Israel of its sin. And while he's praying, the Philistines are making their way up the hill. And it's interesting, if you you look at uh, verse 8, the Israelites said to Samuel, please don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us because he's going to save us from the Philistines. And Samuel obliges. It says he actually even goes further than just praying. It says he takes a young lamb, excuse me, and he, he offers it on behalf of the people and he cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. And as he is doing that, this great thunder occurs. And the people of Philistia are freaking out. And they start running all over the place. And Israel has this major battle victory over the Philistines. It's unheard of. I mean, this is like uh, conquering a great foe. They never should have been able to do it. And so they come to Samuel and they're like, we won. This is amazing. And Samuel says, let's set up a stone so that we will never forget what just happened. And so they set up the stone and it's called Ebenezer. Not Scrooge, Ebenezer. It means stone of help. And so they set up this landmark so they would always look back and remember, it is God who helps us. It is God who gives the victory. So that's for chapter 7. That's the very end. Let's set up the stone so we never forget. In the beginning of chapter 8, they're like, okay, let's set up the stone so we never forget that God is over all. Now, Samuel, we want a king. Why do you want a king? We want a king so we could be just like all the other nations. Verse 5 of chapter 8. And Samuel thinks it's a terrible idea. But he still goes to the Lord in prayer about it. Verse 7 of chapter 8. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to the people and everything they say to you. But they have not rejected you. They've rejected me as king. They're doing the same thing to you, Samuel, that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Now warn them of what a king will mean, but allow them to have the king. So the rest of chapter 8, what you have is Samuel coming back after talking to God about the king, saying, listen, you want a king, there's, some, there's a price to pay if you want a king. He's going to take portions of your crops to feed his servants. He's going to take your people, your sons, to be his soldiers. He's going to take your daughters to work 
uh, in, his, in his home. He's, he's going to, to impose taxes on you so you will have to pay him taxes. There's a cost to having a king, and I think it's a terrible idea. And then verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel, and they said, no, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. He'll go out before us, and he'll fight our battles. Why in the world would God allow the people of Israel to have a king? It's a little side note, but I think it's important for us to know. Sometimes uh, God brings judgment on us by allowing us to have exactly what we want. Romans 1 verse 26 says, this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. See, there's, there's reasons in life where God will simply give you over to the things that you desire most. And it's a judgment. And it's his way of showing us that what we desire when it's not him will always leave us unsatisfied. God allows these people to call for a king. Chapter nine, sorry, yeah, chapter nine. Um, you get this interaction, I'm gonna skip most of chapter nine. You get this interaction between Samuel the prophet and this young man named Saul. Uh, Saul is described as being head and shoulders above everybody else in height, as being a handsome, impressive young man. And he's out looking for his father's donkeys. He can't find his donkeys. Instead, he finds Samuel, and Samuel says to him, hey, here's the deal. You're going to be anointed king. And it's interesting that Saul's first response, you see it in chapter 9, verse 21. Saul's first response is, hey, wait, I'm, I'm just a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes, and my clan, even inside my tribe, is the least important in all of the Benjaminites. I am just, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little small-town kid. Why would you choose me to be the king of the nation? You get to chapter 10, and Samuel actually anoints him and pours oil on him and, and kisses him and says, the Lord has anointed you to rule over his inheritance. And then, and then it's interesting, Samuel says, here's some things that are going to happen just to affirm this anointing. You're going to see this happen, you're going to see these people, this is going to happen, and then finally he says in verse 8 of chapter 10, you're going to go to Gilgal, and after, uh, I will come to you, and while you're at Gilgal, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to offer burnt offerings, and I'm going to sacrifice fellowship offerings, and while you're at Gilgal, wait seven days until I come to you, and I'll show you what you're supposed to do. That becomes really important later on in Saul's story. But even as he's anointed king, he's still reluctant. Not only is he saying, I'm just a little kid, I'm just a small town kid, what are you picking me for? He gets home after going for days looking for his dad's donkeys. And he sees his uncle, and his uncle's like, where you been? He's like, looking for the donkeys. Did you find them? No. But we went to Samuel, who was a known prophet. Oh, really? What did Samuel say? And Saul says, um, he just told us somebody found our donkeys. So you still get this reserved, reluctant man being called into a position of great responsibility. Chapter 10 continues, and, and, and now there is a public anointing, a public calling of the king. Samuel lines up all the people. He says, okay, now just the tribe of Benjamin. Everybody else can go home. Okay, now just this clan, the Matrite clan, nobody else can go home. It's just going to be from the Matrite clan. And then finally he says, it's going to be Saul. Saul is going to be the king of Israel. Everybody, let's hear it for Saul. Where's Saul? Anybody seen Saul? 
Nobody's seen Saul. And I find this hilarious. The people, upon the announcement of Saul being king, are like, long live the king! Where is he? Anybody seen him? And the person who finds him is God. Look, look, at, look at verse 22. The Lord replied, they again inquired the Lord, hey, but where is he? Has the man come here yet? And the Lord says, yeah, he's here. He's hiding among the supplies. Don't play hide and seek with God. He will always find you. He's like, Saul, the one I called to do this, he's over there in the luggage. And Saul's got to be like, man. But you still have this reluctant attitude in him, don't you? The people, long live the king, long live the king, yay. They're all excited they got what they wanted. And Saul's like, I don't know if I want this or not. And then there's a certain group of people, the end of chapter 10, there's a certain group of people who said this, verse 27, wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him. And they didn't bring him a gift, but, but Saul said nothing. So not everybody was thrilled that this little Benjaminite, who was actually tall and very handsome, became the king. They thought he ain't got what he needs to have until chapter 11 happens. You look at chapter 11, there's a fellow named Nahash. He's the Ammonite leader. Nahash means the snake. It's like a great character name, isn't it? Man, I'm sure he's got a tattoo of a snake on his arm, maybe on his face if he was really a bad guy. Nahash is bringing siege uh, to these people, and it's the uh, Jabesh. So they're surrounding Jabesh. They're not letting any food in and anybody out, and so things are going very poorly. And so the the rulers, the elders of Jabesh say, okay, Nahash, Nahash, listen, we'll make a treaty with you. What do we have to do to make a treaty with you? And Nahash says, ah, not so much. You just got to let me gouge out your right eye, all of you, the entire population, and the, the, the rulers of Jabesh are like, give us some time to think about that, would you? Which, man, they've got to work on their negotiating skills a little bit. I mean, that's like, what? no, that's a terrible deal. But they're like, Look, can you give us seven days and let us ask some people and we'll get back to you? And Nahash is like, yeah, whatever. And so messengers are allowed to leave Jabesh and they, they go out. And Saul, who is out in his field working, hears about what's happening and he is livid. It says that the Spirit of God comes upon him in a powerful way. He sends word to the entire nation of what's happening. And then he sends word back to the men of Jabesh. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. This is, this is, this is fantastic. In verse 10 of chapter 11, the men of Jabesh go to the Nahash and they're like, hey, we got an answer for you about that peace treaty you were talking about. We got, we got an answer for you. Tomorrow, we'll come outside and you can do to us whatever you want. And Nahash is like, fine, whatever. But in fact, what happens the next day, Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invited the, sorry, invaded the Ammonite camp. And they slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. I want you to see this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. After this, the people said to Samuel, come on, Samuel, let us know. Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Look what he's done. Give us those men so we can kill them. Remember those men? Who is this guy? He's not going to help us. And, and now the people are like, those people, they need to be executed. They doubted the king. They need to be executed. And Saul, overhearing the people say this to Samuel, says this in verse 13, no one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance. He says, no, 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 no. See, it's still the reluctant man. No, 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 it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about God. It's what he did. I'm just his vessel. I did nothing about God. 
So you have this very interesting build in, in the life of Saul, so much so that you don't expect chapter 13 to happen. I think in chapter 13 what has happened is, remember I said that he was impressive in everybody's eyes? I think by chapter 13 suddenly Saul became impressive in his own eyes. And that's where you begin to see the, the downfall. You begin to see the pattern of him trusting himself, trusting his own judgment and making God's word make sense to him before he would do anything. So chapter 13, what ends up happening is this Saul goes to Gilgal. He's there with his soldiers. He's getting ready to fight the Philistines. He's been in Gilgal for seven days. Now you remember, you go back to when he was anointed king. Samuel told Saul, you go to Gilgal. You wait seven days. I will come and I will show you what you're supposed to do. So sitting there at Gilgal for seven days and his men start freaking out. The Philistines are coming against them in a most aggressive way, a way that they never expected, so much so that it says that all of Saul's men's are hiding. It says that they're hiding in cisterns, they're hiding in caves, in thickets, among the rocks, they're hiding in holes, and some Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 7, some of them even crossed out of the promised land to escape the oncoming Philistine attack. Saul was still there. His troops are gripped with fear. He waited one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days. Now for some of you, me counting that out very slowly drove you insane. Imagine being Saul, knowing the Philistines were about to attack and were going to certainly wipe them out. Seeing his men hide in holes that they were digging as fast as they could. Terrified of what was to come. Seven days. On the seventh day, no Samuel. What's the guy to do? What's the guy to do? Saul said on the seventh day, bring me the burnt offering, bring me the fellowship offerings. And Saul the king did the work of a prophet and a priest, and he offered the burnt offering himself. And this is like every kid's experience. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. It was still day seven. And, and what you begin to see is how Saul is going to deal with his own personal failures. Because as Samuel arrives, it says that Saul goes out to greet him. And Samuel's not having any of that. Samuel cuts right to the chase. Wait, whoa, whoa, what is it that you've done, Saul? I want you to see how Saul answers. Because you can begin to see inside of his character. Just, uh, sorry, verse, Saul answered, verse 11, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, okay, stop right there. So far at this point, he's blamed three other people and not taken any ownership himself. My troops were afraid. You hadn't shown up yet. The Philistines were gonna attack us. 
And so because of those things, I thought, man, with the Philistines coming on me at Gilgal, I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I want God on my side, so I disobeyed. Disobedience will never bring the favor of God. And Samuel says, you are a fool. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God. And now he says, here are the consequences. The consequences are both immediate and long-term. Your reign will not endure. There's the long-term one. Your family will no longer be the king. Your reign will not endure. And here's the immediate consequence. The Lord has already appointed another ruler of his people because you have not done what the Lord's commanded. Takes no ownership, he's got no integrity, and instead he casts blame on everybody else. And, And all of it comes from a need to act, right? It's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to sit still. It's hard to obey when everybody else around you is saying, do something else, it'll, it'll force God's hand. It's hard to, to sit there. We need to do something. We need to do anything. And that is born out of a desire to control the situation that you're in. We hate feeling helpless, don't we? We hate feeling helpless. We want to be able to, to impact our own situations and, and control our own outcomes. That's why it's so hard to wait on the Lord. And what Saul does is anything he can possibly do to control the situation, even just a little bit. But then you get to, to chapter 15, and, 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 and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. This is the most familiar story of Saul and his failure. you got Samuel comes to King Saul, and he says, the Lord has said this, the Amalekites, the Amalekites were a people who were not kind to the Israelites when they were on their exodus. And he says, because of their actions, the Amalekites must be destroyed, God says, I'm going to use the children of Israel as an instrument of my judgment into the kingdom of Amalek, and I want you to go into the Amalekites, and I want you to destroy everything. And he lists it out very specifically. I want you to completely destroy everything they have. Verse 3, don't spare them. Kill men, kill women, infants, nursing babies, oxen, sheep, camels, and donkeys. There's a lot that I could spend time on here trying to, to go through the ethics of this moment. The reality is... God's ways aren't my ways. I don't understand it all. I just know that the point of the story isn't the ethics of this description and this, this, this command. The point of this story is God gives a clear instruction. And what we're about to find is that Saul clearly disobeys it with intention. They fall upon the Amalekites and they begin to, to wipe them all out. And you know Saul understands the, 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 the depth of the destruction that's supposed to happen because Saul sends a message to the Kenites who are neighbors to the Amalekites and says, hey, you guys are going to get out of town for a little while because we're going to come in and we're going to wipe out all of the Amalekites and if you're there, you may get caught up in it. So you, you need to go on a vacation or something because we're coming through. And they come through and it's utter and total destruction. Look at the description of it in verse 7. Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive. Wait a minute, what? He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with a sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the goats, the best of the cattle, the choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. I mean, the way the story's been told, he's like, well, he kept one person alive and a couple of these animals and a few more of those and a couple more of this and a few more of this. 
And at that moment, God speaks to Samuel where Samuel is and says, I, have, I regret that I've made King Saul king over my people. Samuel goes to confront Saul and he can't find him. Why can't he find him? Because the people tell him Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. No longer the reluctant king. So he's building his own monument. Samuel, Samuel finally finds him and, and, and Saul, Saul, Saul cracks me up. Saul is such a child. He sees Samuel coming knowing that he's about to get caught red-handed. And he runs to Samuel and he says, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's commands. Okay, there's a great verse in Proverbs that says that the guilty flee even when nobody's pursuing them. He's already being defensive here. I've done everything God called me to do. And Samuel's response is awesome. It's almost like, I mean, okay, so a little bit of Frankism here. Saul come, or Samuel comes and Saul says, oh, I've done everything God has instructed me to do. Moo. Excuse me, pardon me, sorry. Samuel says, then if you followed what God commanded you to do, what is the sound of sheep and goats and cattle that I continue to hear? And again, here comes Saul. The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle so that we could offer a sacrifice to God. Okay, now we've crossed the line. Now Saul's not taking any responsibility. He's blaming the troops, and he's blaming God. You get the wonderful verse that we've all probably quoted to our children in verse 22. Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in these burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is, the like, is like the sin of divination. Defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. I need to point these two things out, and then I want to get to the, to the point. Uh, verse 24, Saul falls on his face before Samuel and says, I've sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command by your words. Why? Because I was afraid of the people. Samuel continues dealing with him and talking to him. And verse 30 kind of gives us a picture of one of Saul's greatest besetting sins. Saul said, listen, Samuel, I know God's rejected me. I know you have rejected me as the prophet of God. I know I have sinned, verse 30, but would you please honor me in front of the elders of my people and before Israel? Could, 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 could you go back and pretend like everything's okay? Because I want all these people to look at me with honor. I want all these people to look at me still with admiration. See, his greatest concern was what people thought of him, and the downhill continues from there. So much so, and you know the story, we're going to talk a little bit about next week. David, David is anointed as king. David comes on the scene. David slays Goliath. David has the women singing songs about how he's killed his ten thousands of men, and King Saul, he's only killed a couple thousand. And this jealousy rises up when King Saul so that now we get to see him go full cycle. He went from, he was the reluctant king, and now he's pursuing David to kill him, God's anointed one. Because of his insecurity and because of his jealousy, because of his need to appear before people in a certain way, because of his self-reliance, he's become the enemy of God's will. From the reluctant king the one who says, no, no one dies. This was God's victory, not mine. 
to chapter 22 when he has 85 priests murdered because one of them helped David escape. So what, what are we to learn from the life of Paul? Oh, sorry, I knew I was going to do that. Paul, Saul. Saul was dishonest. Saul was arrogant. Saul was not a man of integrity. He was more worried about how he was perceived than about who he was. Is that uncommon? So, so um, I make no secret of this, my, my besetting sin, the one that I have to murder every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, is being more concerned about how I'm perceived than about who I really am. I've got to kill that regularly. I, am, I, I have this people-pleasing vein in me that just cries for attention all the time. And if I don't murder that thing, it is going to be an ugly day of sinful choices for Frank. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon to be arrogant. It's not uncommon for us to be dishonest. It's not uncommon for us to be lacking integrity. So what do you do? What do you do to avoid making yourself the center of everybody's world? That's what people-pleasing really is. I need everybody to see me this way. I need to make sure that when a people-pleaser at its worst is the person who, whenever they walk by a couple of people who are talking, always assume that they're talking about them. How do, I, how, how do I keep that from happening? How do I keep from trying to be the center of everything and everybody's life and, and every thought that everybody has and, and being involved in every situation and every conversation? What do I do to fight that? Here's, here's a practical one. This is sound very self-serving, but understand this. Join a local church. I don't mean attend a local church. I don't mean stay on the outside, be a creaster, someone who comes at Christmas and Easter. Okay. Don't, don't, don't be a Mother's Day member who shows up when mom's in town for Mother's Day and you're like, yes, this is my church. I've had, well, I can be careful. I've had, my wife just looked at me and went, <laughs> that's when you know I gotta be careful. I, I've had people introduce me as their pastor. They've never stepped foot in this place. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, that'll be $20, please. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that looks like, but, but, but what I mean is, is join a local church, be, become a member of a local church. Why? Because when you are a member of a local church, it gives you the opportunity to be known by other people. In fact, that's the second thing that you need to do to avoid this becoming the center of everybody's life. Be known by other people. Be vulnerable. Build relationships within which you can be real. And, and, and hey, there's, there's no better place to do that than, than with a group of members from that local church you just joined, right? Does it sound like something? Maybe, I don't know, community groups? But be involved in a, in a group where you can be vulnerable and transparent and honest with them. Serve. Serve in your local church. But serve in ways that nobody else sees. Make it a point to, to serve in the, in the, the background, to, to, to serve in hidden ways. They're not unimportant ways, but it's going to remove you from being the center of everything. Pray that God would reveal to you how you're selfishly and insecurely serving yourself and ask God to show you ways you can fix it. So, so here, this is, the, this is where the gospel project thing comes in, right? 
Because the reality is, don't live like Saul is an easy application, and there's a great application, but there's so much more. Because all of these kings are shadowing the greater king that is to come. And so as you look at Saul, you see that he faced enemies, you see his troops freaked out on him, and then he takes matters into his own hand to please God. But as you look at the future king to come, Jesus himself, you contrast that, man, he, he faced enemies, and his disciples freaked out and abandoned him, and yet he entrusted himself into his father's hands. Saul thought about his own interests, uh, made Israel his servants, because of his selfishness, many in Israel died. He was unforgiving of the people who failed him. But Jesus thought of other people's interests. He served us. He selflessly gave himself where we should have died. And when we failed him and rebelled against him, he laid down his life. See, it's more than just living a moral life, and that's the application we take from King Saul. It's more than that. It's in Jesus, we have perfect obedience. So my motivation to not live like King Saul has nothing to do with gaining acceptance in God's eyes. It has to do with, you know what, I want to look more like who I truly am in Jesus. What about the lessons from the Israelites? And and I'm going to be careful about this because this is actually a very loaded um, application. But, but it's actually, I think, um, very true and very easy to see within uh, America in 2018. How do I want to say this? Earthly political powers. There you go. American political powers are not our hope. Thank God is right. It doesn't matter what political affiliation they are. They are not our hope. Um, Really want to be careful. It broke my heart to hear a group of people who claim to be evangelicals say that if a certain person is not in office, we have lost everything. America is not everything. And America does not provide anything for us that God doesn't want us to have. We don't serve that king. We have the greatest king. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We have the king who who holds the hearts and brains of the princes and presidents and rulers and prime ministers in his hand, and he turns them however he wants. And they'll answer to him. Chapter 8. Let me read this. I read it once. I'm going to read it again. The people refused to listen to Samuel when he was saying, no king, no king, no king. They refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. Verse 19, verse 20 of chapter 8. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, and our king will judge us. He'll go out before us, and he'll fight our battles. The most heartbreaking thing about that statement is this. That job was already filled so is the king of you. That job's already taken. God goes before you. God fights your battles. God cares for you. God brings peace. And once you begin trusting in another to take that position, we are worshiping at the wrong throne. So no matter how much we align with the the politics of the day or we disagree with the politics of the day, I really don't care. The reality is this, God is king, there is no other. 
we all have to choose a king. And for some of us, we've already chosen one. So you're either serving something that brings you life or you're serving something that brings you death. What have you chosen? So in chapter 12, when Saul was kind of going through the official anointing of, of who, uh, Sam, I'm sorry, when Samuel was going through the anointing of Saul, he walks through their history. And, and, and just in chapter 12, verse 6 through verse 12, I'm not going to read it all, but, but that's where you can look for this. He, he says, let me tell you about the history of Israel. You were in the wilderness and you were not believing in God, you were accusing God, and yet God still gave you manna. You served idols, and, and, and because of that, God let other nations afflict you, but when you called out to God for help, he immediately came to help you and to deliver you. Why is that? Why is that? It's not because you're worth delivering. It's not because you're a wonderful person. It's not because you, you testified to the right things. It's not because you bowed a knee in the right times and not in the other times. It's because of God. See, this is something we have to remember. Look at verse, uh, let's see, chapter 12, verse 20. Samuel says, uh, after the people, and this is, uh, man, I am just, I'm having trouble landing the plane. Stick with me. I'm going to land this thing. Even if it just drops out of the sky, we're going to land it. Uh, Samuel had just finished going through all that. Look what God did. Look what God did. Look what God did. And you asked for a king. You crazy people. And, and it's funny. All of a sudden, they get it. It's too late. They've already got a king. But they get it. Verse 19 of chapter 12. They pleaded with Samuel, no, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we don't die. We have added to all of our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. Suddenly, the light goes on. And Samuel's reply to them is, no, stop, don't be afraid. Even though you've committed all this evil, do not turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship him with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. 22 is the key. The Lord will not abandon his people, not because his people are great, not because his people are worthy, not because his people live in the right zip code. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name because of who he is he rescues you because he's a god of great mercy he rescues you because he's a great a god of great love and great grace you couldn't ask for a better king than god who have you crowned who have you crowned would you pray with me father um I certainly don't want to recap everything, Lord, but um, yeah, this morning has been kind of, my brain's been scattered, so Lord, I, I pray that, that uh, in this moment you would do what only you can do, and take your word and apply it, and drive it home and remind us, but, but, but God, I, I ask that you would, even in these closing songs, these closing moments, that you would grab our focus and attention and that kind of removing everything else that's already happened this morning. Uh, grab our gaze, our focus. Help us see you. Lord, I pray that regardless of everything else that's clamoring for our attention today, that we would make you the king of our life. Father, that we would bow at your throne and only yours. We would celebrate what it is you've done for us because it's been so much and so undeserved. Father, thank you. 
for loving us the way you loved us, mercying us the way you have mercied us. And I, I pray that we would somehow give you the worship that you deserve. Thanks for Jesus. It's in his precious name I pray.